I was born in the early 70s. This means in my lifetime, the number of people on Earth has doubled, while the size of wild animal populations has been reduced by 60%. Humanity has swung a wrecking ball through the biosphere. We have chopped down over half of the world's rainforests, and by the middle of this century, there may not be much more than a quarter left. This has been accompanied by a massive loss of biodiversity such that the biosphere may be entering one of the great mass extinction events in the history of life on Earth. What makes this even more disturbing is that these impacts are as yet largely unaffected by climate change. Climate change is the ghost of impacts future. It has the potential to ratchet up whatever humans have done to even higher levels. Credible assessments conclude that one in six species are threatened with extinction if climate change continues. The science community has been sounding the alarm over climate change for decades. The political and economic response has been at best sluggish. We know that in order to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we need to rapidly reduce emissions now. The sudden increase in media coverage of climate change as a result of the actions of Extinction Rebellion and School Strike for, for Climate pioneer Greta Thunberg demonstrates that wider society is waking up to the need for urgent action. Why has it taken occupation of Parliament Square in London or children across the world walking out of school to get this message heard? Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, July 22nd, 2019, and today the race is on. In order to avoid disaster, the international community has agreed to limit global warming to no more than 2 degrees Celsius. For that to happen, changes are required across all sectors of society. Very few people appreciate just how profound these changes will be. At current rates of pollution, scientists say that society has just 17 years left before dangerous climate breakdown is locked in. Today we share 42 minutes with Dr. James Dyke, academic writer and public speaker based in the United Kingdom, who is the presenter and co-producer of the documentary feature, The Race is On, Secrets and Solutions of Climate Change. Dr. Dyke is a senior lecturer at the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and a member of the European Geophysical Union. He serves on the editorial board of the journal Earth Systems Dynamics and has co-authored over 35 peer-reviewed science papers and book chapters as well as 40 popular science and environmental articles. More information about him can be found at his website jamesdyke.info and more information about the film climateracefilm.org. It really is an honor to be hosting him today. Good morning, Dr. Dyke. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing very well, thank you, and many thanks for inviting me on to your program. You bet. Thank you for coming on. So let's just start with the question that you posed in this essay where I first discovered you. Why has it taken so long? I do feel like it, maybe this spring and summer people are finally waking up to the reality that's descending upon us, but why has it taken so long? That's such a great question. A simplistic view, or at least my simplistic view, is that 
we wouldn't expect industrialized nations such as the United States or the United Kingdom to wake up to climate change until it literally came knocking on their door. And it's been doing that this year. We're currently seeing another heat wave in the Northern Hemisphere, and it was doing it last year with a with a range of record-breaking temperatures and extreme events and wildfires across the Northern and the Southern Hemisphere. And whilst it's always been understood that these impacts were going to happen, there was a great deal of uncertainty about where. There was no uncertainty about if we continue to keep em emitting greenhouse gases, we're going to see increasing temperatures, we're going to see increased frequency of these extreme events. None of that was, was really under any doubt. What has to happen, it appears, is that for people to understand what climate change is, what climate change risks in terms of their everyday lives, they have to experience it themselves. And so perhaps in a very simple-minded way, we're just seeing people understand that this is what climate change means and these are the kind of the importance for the very near future that we are facing. In your essay that I that I read, you kind of start with your own personal history saying that even though this was your business, you you too had kind of compartmentalized the uh, your own personal life versus what you did for a living, knowing full well that what would have to, have to change. What was it that woke you up? I'm not really sure, to be honest. It was, um, in some respects, it was a sort of a gradual process. I can... I have strong memories of particular events, and one that I've talked about before is when I I teach undergraduates about climate change, and I realized I was in the middle of a lecture and I was talking about rates of emissions of carbon dioxide and how much CO2 there was in the Earth's atmosphere. And I was showing the, you know, these now quite famous charts or graphs where you see CO2 just increasing every year. And I suddenly realized that the kind of timescales that I was talking uh, about in this lecture about the IPCC, this big kind of intergovernmental panel on climate change, which is meant to be the international community's collective response to climate change, they've been seriously or they've been making serious attempts to address this problem for over 20 years. I mean, it's founded in 1988. Um, and so the people that I were talking to in my class They've spent their entire lives living in a world in which pretty much all major governments had understood the risk that climate change faced them and future generations and understood what they needed to do, which was rapid decarbonisation. And yet every year when they celebrated their birthday, they're really celebrating uh, a further increase in the amount of CO2 that there was in the Earth's atmosphere. Concentrations of CO2 have never gone down over their lifetime. They've now exceeded 400 parts per million, and there's no real indication that carbon dioxide will ever get below 400 parts per million for the rest of their life. And so I was just struck then by the complete failure of previous generations to take seriously what these young people had been told for all of their school life was this existential risk of climate change. They get taught about climate change when they get to school and then college. Uh, at undergraduate, at postgraduate level, everyone is talking about how important it is for us to do something about climate change. And yet they have all evidence to the effect that nothing actually ever happens about climate change. So it was this sort of sudden realization of how completely we failed them. Um, so that was an important moment for me. Well, let's do talk about fundamentals a little bit. So you mentioned that we're currently 
above 400 parts per million in in the atmosphere right now where you know when does this start changing and and you know what is what is the magic number where should we be and then how much how much warming has occurred and how quickly has that occurred yeah so it in terms of there's there's an important thing to understand i think it's it's what i would say the best science says and where the political community or what we think is feasible because obviously they're two very very different things so in terms of if you're looking for a safe climate if you're looking for a climate which is representative of the holocene which was this sort of geological epoch in which all human civilizations emerged it's about the last 11,000 years it's the climate of the earth system as it came out of the last glacial maximum the last ice age it's a climate that's been characterized by quite stable temperatures maybe some variations in precipitation but in terms of temperatures and sea level rise it's been quite remarkably stable and if we want that kind of a climate then i i agree with people like let's say jim hansen who would say really we should be thinking about concentrations of co2 in the earth's atmosphere no more than 350 parts per million because whilst that's higher than pre-industrial levels of let's say 270 parts per million it doesn't represent a significant forcing a, a significant extra kind of input of energy into the climate system and so that's where 350.org the 350 organization takes its name from because we think in terms of humans overall impacts on the earth's climate 350 seems to be safe well <clears throat> at the moment uh, well, as i speak concentrations as uh, being measured in somewhere like uh, mauna loa which is the uh, the important research station in on top of a, an extinct volcano in Hawaii, where they've been measuring direct concentrations of CO2 since the late 1950s, we're currently reading something a little over 413 parts per million. And there's no indication anyone has any plan how we're going to get back to 350. And so what the international community has decided is that the next best thing to shoot for is to just try to ensure that we don't produce further warming beyond something like two degrees Celsius. With the Paris Accords, wasn't two degrees was like the worst case scenario? And has it now become our best case scenario? Uh, well, okay. if you want to talk about worst case scenarios, then um, uh, it's not two degrees. The worst case scenario is um, a kind of a scenario in which we continue with the business as usual, a business as usual burn all the fossil fuels that we can get, maximize growth, a kind of dash for growth, which when you look at how we've been performing is actually pretty close to, you know, this worst case scenario. So the worst case scenario produces temperatures beyond five, six degrees Celsius, anywhere between maybe let's say eight degrees Celsius. There is large uncertainties as to when that warming will happen, just how rapid it could be. Maybe, I guess we might talk about that in a moment. But when you're talking about two degrees Celsius from the Paris uh, Accord, I don't, you're not going to find really anyone who works on climate science and, and very few people who work in climate science policy who think we're going to limit warming to two degrees. There is, there's no indication that we're going to do that. The only way we have any chance of limiting global temperature rises to two degrees Celsius is with the significant deployment of carbon dioxide removal technologies or negative emissions technologies. Nobody has any credible plan about how we're going to do that. 
there is no demonstration at scale that these things will work. But in some respects, these technologies have to exist because they didn't exist if we were literally pinned in our ability to reduce our impacts on the climate to no more than two degrees Celsius, then we really would have to stop burning all fossil fuels uh, in significantly less than 17 years now, maybe maybe beyond 10 years. Uh, and given that nobody has a plan for how to do that, or nobody at least wants to propose a plan for how to do that, we have to we have to kind of imagine these negative emissions technologies for us to keep to within two degrees. Okay, so what you just said is that essentially right now uh, we have less than 20 years before we run out of our carbon budget for to hold it at two degrees Celsius. And so the only the only solution or only hope we have is, is for like a magic bullet at the end of it that will begin removing carbon from the atmosphere that don't exist. Yeah. Is, is that is that correct? Yeah, so there's there's increased interest of, of these carbon dioxide removal technologies, these negative emissions technologies. Just today, there was a, a paper published which looked at direct air capture as a form of carbon dioxide removal. So just imagine these kind of big fans, massive arrays of fans that would suck in air. Then through a kind of catalyst, they would strip out the carbon dioxide. They would compress that gas and then they would pipe it down into most probably disused oil and gas fields where it would have to be safely stored for thousands of years over a process where it actually turns into kind of um, a mineral process of mineralization. Um, and that's one way in which we propose to suck out millions of tons of carbon dioxide every year, ramping up from the middle of this century. Now, when you look at all these technologies, and that, that's a high tech approach, there's been lower tech, which is essentially cover a surface area of the continental United States with trees because they grow, they absorb carbon. And we can put together all these kind of different schemes. And when you do that, and you actually start to do the maths on how much it's going to cost, and how much energy these systems are going to require, we come up with just situations or scenarios which are in no way feasible. I mean, just this direct air capture scheme, if we wanted to have a significant impact on our ability to take carbon out of the Earth's atmosphere, the amount of energy that we think that system would take to run is equivalent to about 25% of the Earth's, of all of humanity's current energy consumption right now. So not to mention the cost, I mean, these things could potentially be hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars in terms of the amount of investment and the new materials you're going to have to produce and build, and then the infrastructure you're going to have to maintain. Just in terms of energetic costs, it's not very credible that we're going to have spare capacity. Because remember, this is a period where we're meant to be rapidly decarbonizing. We don't have the luxury to be able to put onto existing grids a massive direct air capture plant, which could be consuming as much electricity as a you know a medium-sized town. So I have to go back to my position, which is at the moment, these negative technologies, these the CDR, carbon dioxide removal technologies, are largely fictitious because we haven't really done the science to come up with any credible plan that they are going to have a positive impact. With previous extinction events, what percentage of life is affected by something like that? And, and does this event that we're in 
mirror some of those from the past? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, where we are right now in terms of extinction rates, I mean, as we speak, we are possibly maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of times higher than what you might want to consider to be the, the background extinction rate. Because species are always being created and they are always um, becoming uh, extinct through, you know, just natural processes. The reason why extinction rates are so high at the moment is, yes, climate change is having effect, but it's more to do with land use change, things like deforestation, um, chopping down a rainforest to ranch cattle, and also um, the transport and transport of invasive species, the classic one being rats. You know, rats follow humans around a lot, and we go and visit uh, an undisturbed island. We might decimate biodiversity by, let's say, eating uh, large animals, but it's the rats and other hitchhikers that can just decimate ecosystems because they will encounter an ecosystem that's never come across a rat before. And these indigenous uh, species are, you know, completely vulnerable to these kind of invasive species. So those two main processes of how we've decimated biodiversity. When you go back into, you go back into kind of, you know, deep geological time, there are about five mass extinction events. They're kind of um, periods of significant disruption of the Earth system. Sometimes they're caused by um, in increased volcanism, um, the ignition of large stores of um, buried carbon, which sounds kind of familiar, you know, releasing large amounts of CO2 and rapid runaway uh, climate change. They can also be caused by impact events. So, you know, the famous uh, demise of the dinosaurs we call now the K the KPG extinction, the kind of Cretaceous Paleogene extinction. We think that was largely a consequence of an impact, uh, and we can see what's left of the crater just off the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, but that might have also been um, happened at the same time, or maybe even triggered a large outgassing of um, buried carbon dioxide. Uh, where we are right now. We are approaching, I would say, one of these kind of mass extinction events. We're, we're certainly not anywhere near um, one of these big five. If you're looking about percentage of um, species, then, you know, the, the, the mass dying about 250 million years ago, or maybe even the late Devonian extinction, the, the events that happened then, we could have seen maybe over 90% of all species disappear within you know, a few hundred thousand years or maybe a couple of million years or something. Um, there's no indication right now that we are able to produce anything like a magnitude of that extinction. But I would argue that long before we start to take down a significant fraction of the biosphere, we're going to take ourselves down. The thing that we should be worried about, the extinction event that we should be worried about, is the extinction of our globalized industrialized civilization. And so that kind of speaks to something that I, I feel is happening this summer is uh, I've, I've been really interested in, in climate science and, and uh, climate writing for years and years, but I always felt like it was a personalized issue that if I could make the right choices, I could do something about this. But it mm. feels like we're waking up to this, this realization that this problem is so big that you know, it doesn't, I mean, it does matter my personal choices, but at the same time, to really affect this, we have to 
we have to tap the brakes on civilization and rethink uh, things from a large policy kind of uh, governmental position. Do, mm, um, yeah. I mean, so it it it's interesting because this past weekend in the United States was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo uh, or, uh, Apollo 11 landing on the moon, and this was a kind of a big moment where you know the momentum of the country was put towards one goal. Do you think? I I guess the question is hope. Hope. Do you you know? Is it possible? Can we can we turn the world around and point it in a different direction and and uh, just rethink civilization? Yes, right. I I remain stubbornly optimistic. I, we we have not failed in the sense that the ship can't be turned around. I know I know some people. I know quite a few people actually that are pretty much convinced that that's it. Really, we've. Um, we've lost whatever battle we are meant to be in and we are looking towards an inevitable slide towards a disintegration towards collapse you know i don't know um but i think we can do it i i do think we can do it there's nothing physically impossible about the things that we need to do we don't need to invent nuclear fusion we don't need to put massive mirrors up into space we don't need to tow the earth a bit further away from the sun these are all we have all the technologies that we need. We don't need to invent or discover anything new. We need to do maybe something which is much, much harder, which is thinking about the structuring of our societies. And so it's always struck me that some of the some of the smartest people, certainly that I know, and some of the smartest people around who work in various areas of science or engineering can have the most powerful imaginations about what is possible and make deep links and understanding, you know, some fundamental aspects of reality. But they can demonstrate really remarkable limits of imagination for how we could actually function as a society, how we might be able to restructure some aspects of a society. I think there's a form of deep conservatism, conservatism with a small c, um, and that they just, the kind of changes that we require just may be unimaginable for them. So what's much easier in, the, in that instance, and I'm glad you mentioned Apollo, because I think it's much easier to come up with an optimistic scenario, which is one based on technology, because it allows you to essentially keep telling you the same story that we've told ourselves, which is that growth is going to solve all of humanity's problems, including the problems caused by growth. And so if you have a problem with carbon dioxide concentrations in the Earth's atmosphere, as a consequence of our industrialized civilization, well, then the solution is we'll just have to take it out the out the atmosphere. We'll just have to suck it out somehow. And if you pursue that line of reasoning, then you can imagine you know future machines, you know, Jeff Bezos living on the moon and using some kind of geoengineering technology that will save planet Earth. Unfortunately, those things don't work, uh, and they can actually be dangerous because they allow us to persist in what you might think of as a growth mindset, in the assumption that if we just keep on doing what we're doing, but even go faster, we'll actually be able to effectively outrun the consequences of our effects on the Earth system. So as someone who grew up with Apollo, I mean, I was, I'm just about old enough for, to have been alive when humans were on the moon. And it was a massive, a massive, uh, had a massive impact on my life growing up. It was 
everything about science and engineering and technology that I love, the idea of just discovery for discovery's sake and literally taking to the stars. Um, I also have to understand that Apollo was a project of its time. It was driven by Cold War rivalry. It was a, a system designed by, you know, uh, engineers and scientists who previously developed the terror weapons from the Nazi war machine. I mean, it was it was a project which kind of changed our view of the world, but it came from that worldview. And it's not going to work for us right now. We need something, I would argue, radically more innovative, even even more daring than the kind of aspirational vision that Kennedy laid out over 50 years ago, which eventually put humans on the moon. Well, so you introduced me to a concept in the, in the essay, which, um, and it speaks to this idea of growth, because growth is built into our civilization that we can grow our way out of any problem, but it's the idea of the technosphere. Could you break that down and explain it a little bit? Yeah, so the technosphere is this really interesting idea that um, humans might not actually be in control of what we consider to be our civilization. If we go back 4.6 billion years ago when the Earth was just formed, it's a li literally it's a molten ball of rock. And if you want to understand what the Earth is at that time and how it is changing its dynamics, its behavior, then we need to use geology because it's all about different kind of rocks and how they're gonna settle out so the heavy ones fall towards the center and the light ones form a crust and how it might distribute energy and dissipate heat. If we wait for a little while longer, about 2.7 billion years uh, from today, we see the emergence of life and life has had such a profound impact on the earth. It's changed the composition of the oceans, the crust, the atmosphere. In order to understand the earth, we need a new concept, which is the biosphere, which understands that the Earth system now is not just a geological system. It doesn't just have water on it. It doesn't have a hydrosphere. It also has life, which is intimately involved. And then if we want to understand the Earth system right now, then we need to understand both the geosphere, the biosphere, and something called the technosphere, which is essentially humans. Everything that we've built, our kind of infrastructure, the materials, our skyscrapers, our buildings, our cars, the, the, the products that we buy, the products that we litter our homes with, and then also our social systems, our dynamics, our culture, the way that humans interact, the way that they behave. And so in order to have that full description of the earth, we need to in, use it through this kind of lens of the technosphere. And when we do that, what you see is a picture of an earth system that's kind of unfolded. Maybe it's not so much evolved because evolution describes the, the change of life on Earth, but it's more like the unfolding or the development of a kind of an embryo over time. It starts off in a very, very simple state. Over billions of years, it becomes complex and differentiated. And humans, we are just another manifestation of that process. And so rather than see technology, our technological civilization as something that's by us and for us, we see ourselves more in the, in the sense of being a part of a much, much bigger system which has been unfolding over time, and consequently, our ability to control that system may be much more limited than we often assume. So, you know, one of the interesting ideas with that is that thinking in terms of the technosphere, it might devise a solution to part of the climate problem that solves a portion of the of the problem, but causes 
you know, so like uh, some of the tech solutions would be, you know, to uh, shoot particles into the into the atmosphere to deflect the sunlight. But then this would cause acid rain or, you know, do something harmful to other portions of the of the entire system. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just in terms of so we've got these near issues. I mean, we're having the discussions now where we're going to see an extreme. So I would I would propose that we're not very far from the situation where we're going to see an extreme weather event. Maybe it's going to be an extreme heat wave, which is going to maybe kill thousands of people, let's say. Uh, and there's going to be increasing clamor for the government to do something. And and really, the only thing it's got left uh, in our current kind of um, political situation is to reach for the geoengineering tool, such as, you know, solar radiation management. And we don't know how it works. And we've we've seen a number of studies now from various scientific organizations, um, as well as it just being regularly discussed in the scientific literature. And we can't say how it's going to affect global climate. And there are significant risks. But the way things are going, it's going to happen. It almost feels inevitable at times because it's, it seems to be some people's only response to, you know, global heating. Now, that's a good example of rather than address the problem at hand, which is there's too much carbon in the Earth's atmosphere, we seek to, let's say, limit the impacts. And when you look at not just human civilization, but what we can consider to be the technosphere, it's done that time and time again. So some people say we shouldn't worry about climate change because humans always innovate. So if you go back to the 1950s, where we, we were seeing the start of this kind of great acceleration in the numbers of people and the amount of energy that we consume, everyone was worried about um, a population bomb exploding. Paul Ehrlich's famous book in the 1960s. We're not going to be able to grow enough food to to feed all these people. But what happened is that we saw the, the unfolding of a green revolution, which was essentially using fossil fuels to drive farming systems to massively increase yields so that we could produce more food and we avoided starvation. A byproduct of that was increased concentrations of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere, increased deforestation, accelerated biodiversity loss. So by fixing one problem, we, we, we produce a whole series of others. Now, rather than that being an example of don't, you know, don't worry about it, we'll be able to innovate our way out of the problem. This makes me, I would say that's evidence that we have a much larger problem, which is the technosphere, the system that we live in as a sense of insatiable growth. And it will essentially do whatever it needs to do in order to continue to grow. And if that means liquidating most of the Earth's biodiversity, then then fine. I don't see another process or other force that's going to stop it from doing that. Well, so I really like the idea of the technospheres because if you're thinking about this problem from a human scale, you want to find a bad guy, you know, that's like, why, how, how could people, and so we see corporations acting in such immoral ways from a, from a nature perspective. And this at least explains why things behave the way they do. And then at least with that in mind, there's hope on the other side to say, okay, well, if we turned on a machine that's just doing what it was created to do, then we can potentially turn this machine off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a neat idea. Um, so 
it is. I mean, it's certainly the case that there have been some individuals and some organizations, some corporations, governments who have not only dragged their feet on rapidly decarbonizing and reducing their impacts, but have actively tried to undermine our, our collective attempts. So a classic example would be uh, Exxon, Exxon New, Exxon scientists, Exxon Corporation knew in the 1980s that increased use of fossil fuels was going to change the Earth's climate in such a way that it would produce dangerously high temperatures. And it decided then that it would suppress its own internal research. It would disband the labs that produce that research. And then it would, instead of seeking to divest or diversify its portfolio, it began to ramp up uh, its funding of skeptic groups and think tanks, which did everything they could to muddy the waters and sow doubt and otherwise slow down attempts to decarbonize the societies. So there's certainly a sense of culpability and blame but it's not sufficient, I would say, to just identify those individuals, corporations, organizations and say it's their fault. We are in it collectively. It's because it's a problem that we collectively have to address. Now, in saying that, we also need to uh, appreciate that there is a massive disparity on our kind of unwitting effects on the climate and the consequences of those on us. So. If we look at just my carbon footprint, and I like to think I do what I can, the amount of carbon that I emit is many, many times larger than, let's say, an artisanal fisher person living in Bangladesh or something. Um, they have a minute carbon impact as uh, regards to uh, their emissions, yet it's that person who's most vulnerable to extreme weather events as, a, as driven by climate change, whereas me living in a relatively rich nation well it still is until we crash out of you know eu via brexit but you know we we still live in a largely uh, rich industrialized nation where we've got lots of resources and i personally have resources to be able to in some instances literally insulate myself from climate change so somehow we need to capture the differences of impacts the differences of vulnerabilities and chart a way through into this kind of future space this this future earth where we were where we're going to be able to ensure that the 9 billion people alive by the middle of this century and maybe the 11 billion by the end of it are all going to have an opportunity to have good safe flourishing lives so we're just about done but it seems like what i've heard repeatedly is that this problem is so big that there is not one solution that all the solutions need to come into play i'm just curious what in your immediate future what are you working on and you know how how do you remain hopeful that we can like change our evil ways <laughs> well i think um we need to be honest about ourselves, human nature, how we function. Uh, we, all, we need to be honest about this technosphere that we live within and its limitations. And I think the most important thing we have to do right now is challenge this growth mindset, this growth mentality. Uh, I would argue it's a form of religion. It's a, it's a kind of economic system that's very similar to theology, which is what we have to do in terms of policy is ensure that we maintain growth because growth will allow us the innovation to be able to fix the climate problem 
And I don't see any evidence it's doing that. It's only going to make things worse. It's increasing the size of our economies as measured by GDP does two things. It increases the amount of energy we consume and it increases the amount of materials that we consume. And therefore, it increases the amount of waste and pollution that we produce. We have to address those three things. Everything else is just kicking the can down the road, such as inventing future solutions to suck carbon out of the Earth's atmosphere. We have to think about what society is for. Why do we want to work collectively together? We are, we're facing in the near future a problem of automation where increasing numbers of people's jobs are going to be replaced by robots or AI. What are these people going to do with their lives? Because at the moment, the current paradigm is you go to, it, you go to school, you go to college, you get good education, you get a good job. What happens when those jobs don't exist anymore? So we, in some sense, there are great dangers, but there are massive opportunities because it allows us to think about what is it that we value? What, what is beautiful about the Earth system? What do we love about uh, ourselves, our societies, our home planet? Until we can do that, until we can have these much more grown up conversations, I think we're just deluding ourselves that we're coming up with individual solutions to problems when in fact we might just be making the situation much worse. Well, so an interesting point that you mentioned in the film, The Race is On, is that so we've had an explosion of renewable technology, and but it's it's only helped spur the growth. I mean, so it's not mitigating the problem. It's just adding to the problem at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So when you talk to people about um, solar power, right, uh, photovoltaics, let's say solar panels, the price has crashed from the 1970s. I mean, it's it's a thousandth of, of what it was to produce a watt of electricity through photovoltaics, most probably much less now, uh, such that it's cheaper. It's cheaper to produce electricity through solar photovoltaic than coal. Um, and that ignores the uh, kind of uh, externalities, the environmental impacts of coal, just in the simple basis of digging the coal up and transporting it and burning it. That costs loads of energy and money. You can make electricity cheaper using a solar panel. So you think, great, right? But we need to understand that solar power hasn't replaced coal-fired uh, power generation. In some places, coal-fired power generation is reduced. So good examples are the United States and the United Kingdom. These are two countries that have seen their carbon emissions actually go down, their terrestrial emissions at least, their national emissions. And the reason is because they've largely switched from coal to gas. That's also one of the reasons uh, why uh, fracking for gas is being so promoted by some people because they see it as this thing called a bridge fuel. But these bridge fuels and solar panels and wind turbines have not replaced at a global level fossil fuels. What they've done, they've added onto our, our previous existing amounts of energy. And the reason they've done that is because if we're seeing annual increases of our energy consumption, our appetite for energy at 2% or 3% a year, renewables can barely keep up with this increasing demand for energy. So it's not as if we've been sweeping away fossil fuel uh, powered electricity or, or, you know, or just fossil fuels generally in terms of transport, let's say, with you know wind, waves, solar, tidal or whatever. We've really just been adding on. And, and the process of adding that energy, we've allowed humanity to access more materials to produce more goods and services and products, to transport them further around the world, to therefore grow the size of our economies, to increase demand, which then further increases energy and material consumption. So it's just been further accelerating 
the growth of, let's say, the technosphere. It's very, very hard to reduce people's or nations, let alone the, the Earth's energy consumption, because energy consumption is still intimately tied up with gross domestic product, the, the size of economies, how much wealth we are generating. And every pretty much every single nation is run by government that sees increasing the size of its economies as pretty much the number one thing it has to do. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, it, it was a real pleasure. I, um, I guess we could, do, we could do 42 of these 42 minutes and still really not get started, but it was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. James Dyke on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. For more information about his work, check out his website, jamesdyke.info, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website, thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently, all the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And eight years ago, I woke up to the real possibility that humanity is facing disaster. I can still smell that bad coffee. Drink a lot of coffee today Got lost in the fray I gave all I had for a time Then by some strange design I got a case of the empties The ruler of my world A lost, forgotten pearl and Something to burn